nature of good works. The nature of good works, what these good works are, uh, how these good works are to be uh, counted, how we are to know if they are good works, uh, what the purpose of those good works are, and why they are important uh, to us. So our scripture reading this morning there in Ephesians, these are hopefully very familiar uh, verses to you. Uh, These are one of those passages I don't think you could uh, go to enough certainly reminds us of our uh, life in Christ Jesus, uh, but also reminds us of what we once were and how this sequence of events that brings us from uh, being dead in our trespasses and sins and brings us to these, this new creation or this new creature in Christ, which in effect and as a result, uh, these good works, uh, that is where they uh, come from. Beginning there in Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we looked at last week how these good works that are referenced according to paragraph two are works that are done uh, in obedience to God's commandments. Uh, we determined already that these works are not the, uh, or do not produce salvation. They don't produce conversion. They don't make us alive. They don't quicken us. It says God does that. Uh, but we do know that it's the fruit and the evidence of a redeemed, converted soul. So these good works are done in obedience, which is very important to understand that unless a man or a woman has been converted, it is impossible for them to obey the good works that God commands. Uh, good works are not, uh, do not stand on their own merit. Uh, those good works stand on the merit of Christ and what Christ has done. Uh, we looked at in that paragraph how it, the, the fruits and the evidences of a true and lively faith And by them, believers manifest those things we looked at. Thankfulness strengthens our assurance, edifies the brethren, adorns the profession of the gospel, stops the mouths of adversaries, and glorifies God. And we looked at those last week and how how very important those are. So when we look at all the scripture references, we referenced most of those verses last week. The only two we didn't get to are Ephesians 2, verse 10, and Romans 6, 22. And of course, we read Ephesians 2 this morning. So we are primarily dealing with today about the uh, Christ-centeredness or the God-centeredness of these good works. Uh, These good works are always centered on Christ. These good works are always a result of a converted life. 
there are many today who are doing all they can to try to earn these, uh, these merits. Uh, there are many in the church today who are going about getting involved in every good work that they can. Uh, they may never tell you that they think this is bringing any sort of merit to their account, uh, but I would say it is sadly, it happens more than you would care to know. Uh, even in the subconscious level, uh, mankind believes that by doing something, by doing these good works that they are somehow helping God or they are somehow adding to their ledger, to their account. Paul in Ephesians 2 pretty much uh, just destroys that idea. Uh, The idea that he even says that we all had our times past. You'll notice that all had our conversation in times past of the lust of our flesh. Uh, The man here today who says, I never lived in the lust of my flesh is a liar. Uh, The one who says, I never desired the lust of the flesh, and I certainly never fulfilled the lust of the flesh. I have always been this spiritually minded individual who is always determined to do what God wanted me to do. And it wasn't God that came seeking after me. It was I that went seeking after God. And again, I would say you greatly misunderstand or you're a liar. Uh, These things are the workmanship of God. That's why this new life that is found in Christ Jesus that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2, he says even there, we were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Uh, A child of wrath is the enemy of God. A child of wrath is one who has uh, no rights to stand where he or she is standing, Uh, that they are under the wrath and the, uh, the, the condemnation of God. And yet Paul says, but God, and we love that those two words, but God, who is rich in mercy. Paul is definitively declaring the time when everything changed. What once was is now no longer. What once was your desires to fulfill the lust of your flesh, that now has been removed. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless, but it certainly means that a change took place. I'm afraid too many people have presented the gospel as something that doesn't really uh, demonstrate a real change. Uh, it's, it's been watered down to a prayer and a commitment. And as long as, I'm, if I, as I pray, as I pray, I commit, I sign a membership card um, after I've been baptized, I'm all good with God. I pronounce to others, I'm saved, I'm converted, I'm in the family of God. And yet they live year after year, day after day, and there's never evidence of a changed life. It is impossible to be changed by the grace of God and not have a changed life. Now, all lives may not look exactly the same, but there's going to be a change. As the Paul wrote there, and he's talking about those last couple of phrases in paragraph two, not after the glorify God whose workmanship they are, that's a reference to these good works and to the people who do them, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So this is a very important concept. So we learned last week, as far as an overview, that paragraph two teaches us that good works are not the basis of salvation, as we, as we, as we study actually in chapter 11 of the confession, but the result and the evidence of salvation. But good works are absolutely critical and important to show that someone's faith is genuine. So that was where we started. We dealt last week primarily with James chapter 2 and the, the concept of faith without works is dead. And we saw that good works are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. 
Uh, good works bring many blessings to believers. That's the two areas we covered. And then today we're primarily dealing with good works are God-centered or we might say Christ-centered acts. Okay? So these good works have their origin in Christ Jesus and are prepared by God for them. Uh, here's one of the astounding truths. Uh, you don't choose your good works. These good works are created in you. This completely does away with the idea of trying to sign up for good works. Uh, churches are very well known for their sign-up sheets. And their sign-up sheets are very well known because they're presented as ministry opportunities. And I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with that. I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with people serving in the church and serving in the building and serving in various capacities. We're supposed to be doing that. But remember that the workmanship and the works that God is talking about, these Christ-centered acts, these are the works that God prepares in us. Uh, he is the one that is equipping us to do these things. Now, of course, there's going to be a change of heart towards things. There's going to be a change of mind towards our, our, our own lust. There ought to be a change of mind regarding our flesh. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't covet our flesh and its desires. We say, no, I, I want to put that away. As John Owen said, I, I want to mortify the flesh. I want to do everything I can to kill the flesh so that the flesh does not rule me because I'm not supposed to be ruled by the flesh any longer. But these good works, as you see what Paul was talking about there, we, we glory in these great truths about God, rich in mercy, and we should about this converting grace that he talks about. Uh, this, this idea that mercy uh, gives us and turns us from these, these depraved, miserable creatures into these, this new creation in Christ. And we see that the source of that is his great love. He loved us even when we were dead in our sins. And we see Paul reminds us of that promise that he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in these ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. In every converted soul, God is demonstrating the exceeding riches of his grace. You're not demonstrating the exceeding riches of your free will. Does everybody understand that? That's, you're not, you are not glorifying the riches of your free will. You are demonstrating the riches of his free grace wherein he loved you when you were a desperate, miserable wretch. By grace are you saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Often we stop there and say, okay, I've got that. I, I, I know I'm not saved by works. I know it's not anything that I do. But do you understand that Paul's also talking about that even the very workmanship that you are, he creates those works in you. The actual ability to do those works. Now here's where the quandary comes in. We confuse what man does in the world and we call an unbeliever's works good. Now, they might have a positive effect on society. But those are not the good works that the Bible's talking about. It is impossible for a non-believer to do a good work. Now, they may do something charitable. They may do something nice. But this idea that we think God just looks and says, okay, anytime somebody does something good for someone else, that's a good work. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But rather, he is saying that the, only the believer can actually produce these good works because these works are the result of the workmanship in which Christ has done in our lives. 
Now, again, when you continue down this path of moving away from man-centered theology into Christ-centered theology, it is often a very bumpy road. Uh, some of you who've gone through that journey who know what it was. You came out of a, a man-centered church. You came out of a man-centered theology where it was all about you. It was all about your glory. It was all about your testimony. It was all about how you got saved. It was all about what you did and what you continue to do and how you are not going to be caught hindering the kingdom or the plan of God. Yet at no point in human history has man ever hindered the plan or purposes of God by anything that he's done, good or bad. But these good works, again, it's all about definition. When the rich young ruler was standing before Jesus, Jesus asked him the question, why do you call me good? Now, that sense of good towards Jesus was a sort of perfection. But remember, that rich young ruler believed that he had done all these good works. He said, I've kept all these things from my youth up. But yet you read that account, that rich young ruler went away from the Lord Jesus Christ, still unconverted. The definition of works, Christians cannot boast of their good works as they are from God. If I have demonstrated these blessings we talked about last week, let's say that as, I'm, as I am an encouragement to others, I fulfill these things. My works are manifesting thankfulness like we looked at last week. They are strengthening my assurance. My works edify the brotherhood or the brethren. That my life adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as I do these good works, as the Bible promises, it stops the mouths of adversaries. And even if I was to say all six of these things glorify God, I can never at one point boast of anything that I did. I've often heard it said that some people just have the ability to edify the brethren more than others. And I would suggest to you that these works are created in man by God. And when we are together, and I think we miss this, I think one of the, one of the saddest commentaries on the state of the church today is not a love for doctrine. I think there's churches that love doctrine. I think this church loves doctrine. And praise God, this was a direct answer to my prayer years ago that we would raise up a church, God would raise up a church here that as we raise together and we walk together and we love together, that it would be a church that loves doctrine and is hungry and thirsty for the word of God. And it's amazing to see that happen. But do you realize that one of the great privileges we have is even what we're doing today, the fact that we actually get to come together and learn these truths together. This should be edifying to you. And you say, wait a minute, I'm just sitting here. Shouldn't I do something? You've done more than you think you've done by the fact that there are brethren sitting here today who are edifying and encouraging one another even just by their presence here because we are all moving in the same direction. Now, as a result of our time together, there will be edifying acts that take place. I see it every Sunday. I see it every Wednesday. But there's not a sign-up sheet for those good works. There's nothing out there that says, hey, if you really want to be a blessing to somebody, I want you to sign up for this. I know, as a matter of fact, there's things that go on from the members of this church and attenders of this church, other people in the community, and other people who I don't even know about. You're being a blessing to other brethren, and you didn't sign up for it. We never meant this church building to be the hub of where all the activity is. It's meant to be out there. 
<laughs> it's not meant to be in here. That's why there's not a lot of things going on inside the building when you're here, other than these times when we're called to, to, to come together and hear the word of God preach and to pray and to sing and to, to read the scriptures together. These good works are primarily being, they are being accomplished outside. Paul is not talking about your church life and then your public life. He's not talking about putting on church clothes and being his workmanship. He's saying you are an absolute workmanship of God because he's taken you from a place where you were a depraved wretch who could not even do a single good work, no matter how charitable you were, to now someone whose workmanship he or she is who is producing good works. This isn't an option. You will produce good works if you are, in fact, a child of God. Yet Paul had to keep telling and reminding not just the church at Ephesus about these things, but we need to be reminded as well. By grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, we stop there and we say, okay, my salvation is not of works. But those last few verses, for we are his workmanship. A workman, workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That means the very plan of God after your conversion is what is created in you. You are created unto good works. These good works that we can't boast about, but he means that we are his workmanship, not just as people, but as believers. We are a new creation, a new creature. Who is the creator? God. How were we created? In Christ Jesus. What was, how did that creation come about? It came about by what Christ has suffered and did on the cross for us. He accomplished it. He didn't just make it possible. He accomplished it. So, unto these good works. Now, here's what Paul is not doing. He is not discouraging any way, shape, or form good works when he says, lest any man should boast. So the response should not be, okay, so if I'm created as his workmanship, my job is to just sit back and do nothing and just let them come to me. Our faith is supposed to be active. This, this, here, here's what reformed people can do. Reformed people can get so far extreme, extreme on one end. Okay, that's, that's the one problem that I think we sometimes have. We are people of extremities. It's either, it's either black or it's white. Unfortunately, we have a lot of Reformed people who are absolutely positively in love and enthralled with the doctrine and the theology. And by the way, I love doctrine, I love theology. But if it stops there and you're just seated all the time and all you're concerned about is just the theology and the doctrine, but there's never any evidence of fruit going out, you've, you've succumbed to that extremity. Now, these are God's creation, but that doesn't mean we sit there and do nothing. We ought to be looking and actively seeing the opportunities to do those things, those seven things we looked at last week. We ought to be looking for ways to reveal our thankfulness. We ought to be looking for ways to strengthen our assurance. If I wake up tomorrow and I'm struggling with my assurance, I don't just sit there and say, well, God will just give me more assurance. Actively seek more assurance. Where's the greatest place that you go to strengthen your assurance? Get in the Word of God. 
Yes, you might have to get out of that theology for a while. You might not have to study. You may want to move away from the doctrines of grace, the deep study of, of those doctrines, which is as important as they are. You might need to move away from the theological part and move into the practical part of assurance. You might find a way to edify a brother or sister in Christ. I have never met a Christian who says, I don't need an edification. I've never met one true believer who's ever said that. Find ways to edify the brother. Adorn the gospel. Now, this is, in, this is actual reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ, we adorn. It's, it's to put on this garment. Of course, I'm not talking about your gospel robe that you go pull out of your closet and say, okay, I'm going to adorn the gospel. It's living out the gospel in your everyday life. It's not just making the assumption that I'm just going to go out the door and everybody's going to know, look, I'm adorning the gospel. It's almost as bad as like the hyper-Calvinist who says, well, we don't do anything at all, so there's no need to evangelize. There's no need to really do anything because God determines it all, so we'll just sit here like bumps on a log because God does everything anyway. That's not the truth of Scripture. Again, that's the extreme. There are people of reformed stripes who take that position that not only do we have nothing to do with our salvation, we have nothing to do with anything. And when you ask them, how do you know you're elect or how do you know you're in God? And they say, well, we just, we really don't know. I'm telling you right now, there's no assurance in that. God says you may know that you have eternal life. And one of the great characteristics is love for the brethren in 1 John. If you say, I hate the brothers and sisters in Christ, you really have to ask yourself the question, are you truly converted? Now, again, I'm not talking about liking everybody and getting along with everybody. We know that that just doesn't happen. But I ought to have a, I have a love for people who love the Lord Jesus Christ. I ought to want to be around God's people. I ought to want to be around the things of God. Stopping the mouths of adversaries, what does that mean? Well, there's going to be times you're going to have to stand up for what's right. And if we've ever lived in a time when people's mouths are moving at very quick, quick speeds and saying nothing, it's right now. There is so much talk and none of it, is, none of it makes sense. It's just talking heads talking about everything and talking about nothing at the same time. And yet, the way that those ad, most of those voices are adversarial towards you, they're adversarial towards your family, they're adversarial towards the church, and we're sitting back like church mice saying, nope, I don't want to cause offense to anybody. God will do it. Yes, God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean you have no responsibilities to do anything. You still have a responsibility to stand for the truth. Am I talking about being ugly? No. Am I talking about giving in to the social media chaos and foolishness of the day? No. That's probably, no, let me rephrase that. That's the worst place for you to try to take a stand on something important. Because your opinion is going with about a thousand other opinions. You're not going to make a difference that way. But you are going to make a difference when you start talking to people, when you start speaking to people the truth and glorifying God. So these God-centered acts, these Christ-centered acts, which we have already seen here today that they are his workmanship. Okay? They are his workmanship. They are not only his workmanship, but the fruit of this work in us is that there is holy living. 
Uh, We do live with the desire to glorify God. We desire to live holy lives that are different and separate from the world. Again, it is still unpopular and growing more and more unpopular to preach anything about standards, to preach anything about taking a stand, to be different. And everybody labels everything legalism. Most people who use the word legalism don't even know what the word means. It's just they think anytime you tell me what to do, you're a legalist. Okay, well, you don't understand scripture then. Because the Bible is filled with things we're told to do, whether we like it or not. I heard R.C. Sproul say this past week, he said, there are some things in the Bible that you will absolutely despise, and you're going to have to ask God to help you get over it. And I'm like, thank you, that's right, that hits it right on the head. Because there are things in Scripture I still look at today, and I say, I don't like what this means for me. This means it's putting its finger on something in my life that's a problem that I just don't want to give up. And usually, it relates to holy living. It relates to something that I should have mortified and killed a long time ago. You see, there's always going to be that flesh that's going to rise up and is going to try to counteract the good works that we're doing. Uh, If you think you just get up tomorrow and you're just going to be this, this ball of holy sunshine, that just everywhere you go, you just shine the light everywhere. And everybody just says, oh my word, look at them. They shine brighter than the sun that's out there today. They just walk in a room and you can just see the gospel all over them. It doesn't work that way. An unconverted world is not seeing the gospel sunshine and your aura. Sometimes we think, I've got so much God on me. Every time I go anywhere, people just automatically say, well, there goes someone who's been with Jesus. You know why the disciples were said, uh, said of them that they had been with Jesus? It's because their outward acts were demonstrating a different that they had been with Jesus, not because they just walked through the towns and they just had this holy aura about them. Holiness actually glorifies God. So when we actually live a life that is true unto the Lord, these things are going to result in these great works. So these are created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. When did God create and establish these works? Before the foundation of the world, the same time he determined your salvation. So he did not choose you to be saved with no good works. He chose you before the foundation of the world, not only to convert you, but create you unto good works and would place those within you. It's a great reminder there. So let's quickly go over to Romans. We're not going to look at this whole passage here, but I do want you to see the reference that the the, the, uh, paragraph makes here. Uh, Romans 6.22. What Paul is dealing with primarily here um, in Romans 6 is what I'm going to call a sequence of life. It's the sequence that happens from the time of our conversion until the time... Uh, from, from the time we're converted and how it changes our life. Most people would say that uh, Romans 6 is about walking in the newness of life and how that, um, that we are supposed to mortify sin. We're supposed to be dead to the flesh. But you'll notice in Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, if you'll notice that the last phrase of paragraph two is, a, is actually quoted right from Romans 6.22, the last part of paragraph two, 
having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. So Paul is dealing with this freedom now that we have. We're no longer servants or slaves to the lust of the flesh, our sin. Because if we were left in that condition, the end would be spiritual death, right? If you were left in the condition that you were, you would, that would result in spiritual death. But what has happened now is because of that, there's this sequence in the life of believers. They are set free from sin. They become servants of God, have holy fruit in their lives, which includes good works, and the net result is obtaining eternal life. Now, again, they're not earning eternal life, but that is what, at the end of their life, that they will fully realize what eternal life really meant. We possess eternal life now. It is a present possession, but we do not fully realize what that means for us until we step out into eternity. Every time a a believer dies, they instantly see what eternal life really means. They instantly see what it means to actually be part of the family of God. Now, Paul in Romans 6 is giving all of these sequences in order so that we would not uh, be confused by thinking that all of the works that you do, this is the net result. No, he reminds them at the church at Rome, he tells them the same thing. You used to be slaves to sin, now you're slaves to God. So when when a believer is converted, they are not only converted, but they are justified. Okay, remember, there's are two separate things here, conversion and justification. Uh, some of the man-centered free will gospel that's being presented likes to wrap it up all into one ball and say, all you have to do is this and all these things. There's the reality. These are separate transactions. Justification is a legal standing. You are now standing before God not in your righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are now legally declared to be one of his. Sanctification is that process where we are becoming more and more like Christ through our lives. Sanctification is not instantaneous other than our positional sanctification, because the minute we're converted, we are positionally in Christ. We're seated in heavenly places. It's, it's as if we're in two places. We're seated with him in heaven, and we're here. But sanctification is where these processes are taking place. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And I've always found it interesting that Romans 6.23, the verse that everybody goes to, follows what Paul says about you are no longer a slave to sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In my human thinking... Verse 23 should have come before verse 22. Now again, maybe I'm the only one that sees that. Because you'll see what he's doing there. He he, he could have said, here's here's the bad news, but now here's the good news. But what he actually does is he gives us the good news first that we are now free from the wages of, we're free from sin. But then he reminds us because here's what would have happened. The wages of your sin, if you would have stayed in that condition, would have resulted in eternal spiritual death. 
Now, again, I'm not suggesting the scripture should be changed, so don't go that direction. I'm just telling you that's the way my mind thinks. And I think it's okay for us to look at scripture. And sometimes our minds look and see scriptures. I'm not changing the meaning. I'm just looking at it. Humanly speaking, it makes more sense to me. But I trust the inspiration of the scripture and the way it's written. But this end result, this sequence of life, remember, all of our eternal life is a gift to us. Death doesn't, we don't have to earn death. Death is, is already coming. It's already due to everybody who has sinned. So all who have sinned are going to die. Sin is represented as this is what the payment for sin is. If you work for sin, here's what you get paid. Eternal death. If your good works that you classify in this world, good works, but you're unconverted. Your good works in this world still equal spiritual death. You say, no, that man was too generous to actually get spiritual death. That man or that woman was too loving to get spiritual death. If that person has not been created new in Christ Jesus, if that person is not a new creature in Christ who has the righteousness of Christ imputed into them, they are incapable of doing good works. There are people on this planet who cannot fathom that a person, for example, like Mother Teresa, is not in heaven. There's absolutely no evidence anywhere that any, I've ever seen. Again, it's not for me to determine a person's heart. But there's nowhere that says that she ever solely relied and repented and focused on Jesus Christ alone as her salvation. Yet read a biography of her works. Read a biography of the things that she did. Human mind says there's no way that person could not be in heaven today. But look at all the good works they did. The problem is the good works that God recognizes are only good works that are a result of his workmanship that he created in you. This is a truth I never heard all my life. I never, I never saw the reality of what Paul, through inspired scripture, was trying to tell us. Good works are something that obviously God has to do. So as far as our theology matters or our questions, we're going to primarily look at verse, we're going to look at the second question for the rest of our time today. But those seven, those seven manifestations, we've, kind of, we've already been dealing with those today. We've talked about thankfulness, about assurance. We've talked about the edifying of the brotherhood or the brethren, adorning the gospel, uh, stopping the mouths of adversaries, and uh, glorifying God, and then the fruit of holiness. Now, again, we as Reformed people are very quick to make a snap answer to question two. But I want you to look at the question and I want you to actually think about the question before we just kind of answer it. Why is it so difficult for people to accept the concept of a salvation of free grace apart from meritorious good works? There's a couple of words I put in there intentionally. Accept and concept. Those two words are not there by accident. I, that's kind of want you to think about it. So the floor is open for that. What do you think? What, why, do you think why do you think this is so difficult? And I think also we probably need to define who the people are. 
People's a pretty wide statement, isn't it? So people. So we might have to look at people from two types of people. There's only two types of people in the world, right? Believers and non-believers. And so when you don't understand who God is, and that God is holy, you have an inflated understanding of who you are and who man is. Okay. And so that puts you in the wrong place to begin with. Okay. So, so one reason, so one reason is, is a lack of understanding of who God is. So we'll summarize that as one response, a lack of understanding of who God is. So someone remember that because my mind won't remember all that. You got your hand up? Okay, go ahead, Evan. Very good. So we've, so we've got the lack of understanding of who God is and that it's quite frankly, I agree with that. It's easier. It's easier to feel as if I'm doing something that's earning that. Good. Another hand. So much of the rest of our lives is merit-based. Whether you're a student. <laughs> yeah. Whether you're a job. Yeah. Whether you... Whether you, you eat that day. I mean, it's yeah. And so it's, it's, it's easy to fall into that because we just kind of just, just go there in our minds, I, I guess. But Everything else is earned, so why wouldn't this be too? I mean, reality is, it is earned. It's just not earned from us. Correct. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, yep. No, sorry. sorry. <laughs> I think of my neighbors. <laughs> and I think this would probably be a lot of our neighbors. Man, you get into conservative political circles and we're not like those people who yeah Republican and the Pharisee all over right yeah killing babies and hate police officers and blah 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 and, and so we, 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 we can't be that bad exactly we're pretty good we, we think we think straight we think we think clearly and so yeah. how dare you say that I'm just as bad as that person oh, yeah and I deserve hell as much as that person mm-hmm. when Sorry. <laughs> Great observation. Yeah. Kristen? I think also, I don't think it's by accident that um, the persistent lie in false religions throughout the centuries is there's something you can do. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's definitely a satanic influence throughout I, the centuries. I would agree. I would agree. 
I would certainly agree with that. Jacob. That's, you did that this week? What is that? What's that a picture of? Jonah knows. <laughs> what is that? The fire and God saw them from the fire and Moses was talking to yeah. Moses was talking to what? To God. To, yeah. What was he? What was he? To, what, how was? Where was God speaking from? Very good. Very good. That that'll that'll give you an idea who God really is, won't it? It's a great Bible lesson, Jacob. Yeah, it's not gonna be long for Jonah's contributing too. He's already ready to contribute. Look at him. He's ready. I got something. <laughs> Are you any other thoughts? <laughs> One day he'd be able to explain exactly what he means, right? <laughs> all right, anything else? All right, well, that's good. So um, those are all, I think every one of those thoughts from, from my, that's exactly right. I think all of those things, they hit both sides of that and both sides of the equation of who you are. So um, next week, we'll get right into um, paragraph three, uh, which will kind of, it kind of piggybacks off of paragraph two. Um, it deals with the actual practice of good works and um, how these good works do manifest themselves. And that paragraph primarily deals with an actual influence of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to get into that Holy Spirit that makes us, a lot of people, a little bit, unnerved because we don't want to be labeled charismatic. Don't talk about the Spirit because we'll be charismatic. No, the Spirit is vital. It's God. So it's important that we understand that. All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this time we've had this morning in your word. And Lord, thank you just for the great truths that we've gleaned this morning. And again, even though we maybe have seen this passage, especially in Ephesians 2 and Romans 6, uh, we've read it many times in our devotional time. We've read it uh, in, in scripture reading. We've heard it preached. We've heard it taught in Sunday schools. We've heard it uh, given on, on, uh, from other preachers on the internet. We, we have, we've heard these things, but Lord, may, may we not let them slip. May we see uh, this great principle of these good works and how uh, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And uh, Father, we thank you for uh, just the ability to be able to talk about these theological truths. And Lord, thank you for uh, just the, the, what you're doing in our, in our minds and our hearts to be able to express these things. I pray you continue to give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. And may Christ truly be glorified in each one of us. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.